right. Good morning. It's a nice fall day. Good to be with you all. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17. So that is in the New Testament, fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, book of Acts. All right. So we've been in that book verse by verse, and we've been in it actually coming up on like 35, 37-ish weeks we've been studying the book of Acts. And so with that, though, I want to tell you that this passage, Acts 17, specifically verses 16 through 34, where Paul goes to Athens, is the one passage that I have had circled on my calendar in the way that, you know, before a big season when a team is about to play all their games and they circle the biggest game of the year, I feel that this passage is is so important. And so Acts 17, the title of the message uh, this morning from this passage is Jesus among other gods in Athens. Of course, there aren't really other gods, but lowercase g, right? The other gods in Athens, the gods that they believed in. So Jesus among other gods in Athens. We'll read the passage in just a moment. When I first moved to Raleigh in 2007, we were fortunate enough to come and uh, start this church as a church plant. And I remember being an outsider coming to Raleigh. I wanted to learn about the city. And I remember I would ask people, I would say, tell me about Raleigh. Like, what, like what's the culture here? What's the, what's the spiritual culture here? Like, what do people believe? And I remember one guy told me one time, he said, listen, I, I can help you understand the triangle, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Durham, um, with a simple idea. I was like, all right. He said, if you're, just imagine a street preacher. You know, the guy that like goes onto a college campus and just screams at people. Just imagine the street preacher. I was like, okay, I can imagine that. He's like, imagine he goes onto NC State's campus, all right? On NC State's campus, people will kind of listen to him. There'll even be some people that'll gather around and kind of agree with him. Like, yeah, tell him. And and that's Raleigh. That's NC State. This is what he's telling me. This is this guy's perspective. And please, mind you, it's 15 years ago. And then he said, if you go to Chapel Hill, same street preacher, same message, same same thing on a, on a school day on a college campus. People will gather around him, and they'll start mocking him and arguing with him and saying, nah, man, get off our campus. That's what will happen at Chapel Hill, at UNC. And that's what that town's like. And he's like, and then if he goes to Durham, and he goes on to Duke's campus, he does the same thing, same message, same megaphone, same stuff, everything. No crowd. Everybody just ignores him, walks right past. That is Durham. That is Duke. And the guy was like, so that'll help you understand the triangle. I don't know if he was right, but I think he's a little bit right. Because we live in a city and really in a country where you have all together both the very religious, but sometimes religiously lost, and also the very irreligious, the highly educated, the people who know a lot but may not know Christ. And so Paul comes to a city much like that as he comes to Athens, the intellectual center of the world at that time. And I want to just read you the passage because it's a long passage, but it's so good. I want to read it, and then I want to briefly pray for our time studying this passage as we look this morning at three lessons that we can take from Paul's visit to Athens. And so Acts 17, if you'll look with me, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Deep breath. Verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Bow with me and let's pray. Lord God, we bow before you. We humble our hearts and our minds. Lord, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Lord. Your wisdom, higher than our highest wisdom. So God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. Lord, help us to see how the truth of this passage is for us today, is for our life, is for our walk with you this week. So God, we we pray and ask in this time, Holy Spirit, you would work in this room. Help us to see Christ, to see Christ exalted, and to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus among these other little gods in Athens. So what I want to do with this passage is I want to 
draw three lessons from it. So you think about how we as Christians are called to represent Jesus, to represent the true God, to represent the truth, capital T, truth, among the competing lowercase gods, false gods, among the competing worldviews, among the competing little t truths of our society. We're called to do that, to represent Jesus in that place. And so how do we do that? Three lessons from this passage. And the first one is this. Are you ready? Be ready. Be ready for the unexpected opportunities to share truth about God. Okay? So Paul has come to Athens. Verse 16 tells us he's in Athens. He probably got there from Berea. He went to the coast. This is the coast of Greece. He would have got in a boat, gone on the Aegean Sea south to the peninsula part of Greece, and he would have then gotten off at Athens, and it would have been amazing. As he would have gotten closer to Athens, everyone on the boat would have been trying to get toward the edge to look to see this this legendary city with all these beautiful altars and temples and the architecture, and Paul was seeing it as well. He gets off the boat. He walks from the port into the city. He spends time in the city walking around. We know from the text that he's by himself, that he's waiting for his team to join him in Athens. They're not there yet, Timothy and Silas. So what happens? Verse 16 tells us, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Literally full of idols could be translated under idols, submerged in idols. So much idolatry. That's what Paul saw. Some people saw beautiful archaeology. Some people saw that for sure, to be sure, and appreciated it to be sure. But they also had the eyes to see the heartbreaking idolatry. Some people, undoubtedly, perhaps even some Christians, saw and participated in the idolatry. But Paul was heartbroken by the idolatry. It says literally, his spirit was provoked within him. Luke is using a term here, this term provoked very purposefully. This is a term from the Old Testament. This word, the Greek word, exactly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul and Luke would have had access to, this word is used when the Bible refers to God feeling provoked by the idolatry of his people. Isaiah 65.3 is one example. A people who provoke me to my face continually as they participate in idolatry. So listen, let me quickly define idolatry. When we talk about idolatry, we're not talking about those primitive people then. We're talking about people at all times and all places. An idol is to take something, a thing, a person, anything that is not ultimate and make it ultimate. Does that make sense? It's to make a good thing a God thing. It's to bow down and, you know, ascribe great worth and ultimate allegiance to something other than 
the being who deserves it, which is God. And so when we center our lives on something other than God and his will for our lives, we can quickly become idolatrous. And it's something for all of us. And so if we don't have statues and temples and that kind of idolatry, it doesn't make us better or more sort of advanced than those cultures and people. We still struggle with idolatry in our hearts. And it is the same. The human heart has not changed. The fallen human heart has not changed. That's what idolatry is. So Paul sees it, and he's provoked in his spirit. And listen, we're supposed to really understand this. What Luke is trying to say is that Paul had God's heart. The same word that God in the Old Testament, when he's provoked by the idolatry of his people, Paul felt what God feels. Misplaced worship. Worship that only belongs to God is being given to all these other things. That breaks the heart of God, and it should break the heart of God's people. Lord, help us not to just participate in it or just to step back and be spectators. Help us to be heartbroken about it. First, Paul saw it. Sometimes we're not even seeing it. God, give us the eyes to see. Then Paul felt something about it. He didn't desire to participate. He felt heartbroken about it. God, give us your heart for these things. You see? So sometimes we want to share our faith with people because Paul's about to share the gospel. Sometimes we want to do that because, well, we, we think like we don't want them to go to hell, right? We say like, all right, we should share the gospel. We should share about Jesus with people so they don't go to hell. That's a reason. Yeah, it's a great reason. Or maybe it's so, to show that we love them. You know, that's another reason that we get, we get motivated to share Jesus with people. But what we see here is what John Stott calls the highest incentive to evangelize is the zeal or jealousy for the glory of Christ. You see? Outreach exists because worship is misplaced. And we are to help people know who Christ is, who alone is worthy of their allegiance and worship. Now, one of the things that I want to show you next in verse 17 is Paul goes to the marketplace. In Athens, this would have been a huge area. This is not like Crabtree Valley Mall, all right? This isn't the village district. This is the public square. This is city center. This is the center of life in Athens in that day. And the point I think that we're to see here is how Paul brought the gospel to the synagogue, but now this is the first time in Acts where the gospel is brought to the agora, to the marketplace. Why is that relevant? Well, it's super relevant because it reminds us that the gospel, that the truth of God is not just for the religious institution and for religious people. It's for all people in all places. Is the gospel for the marketplace or just the synagogue? Luke answers that question here. It's for both. We often make this, you know, division. We still do it today. And this is a good reminder and challenge to us. You know, we have this division, sacred, secular. You know, Sunday, church, the rest of my week. 
Unless I'm in fellowship group, then also Wednesday, right? <laughs> um, the academy, school, subjects we're learning, science, math, faith. You get the idea. We separate things and we think the gospel and, and God and my faith, that's just for one of those places. The gospel's for the synagogue, the church, and the marketplace. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, says it this way, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God is sovereign. He is Lord over all. So now verse 18, they say of Paul, he's a babbler. Do you see that? Now, this is not a compliment. Literally, they say he's a, a seed picker. He's a scavenger, like a bird who picks up a seed here, picks up a seed there. They're like, this guy's just coming with all these ideas. He's just babbling. He's just got a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He's just, he's just got a bunch of nonsense. They're insulting him. But then in verse 19, he does end up being invited to go to this place called the Areopagus. Arrow is their word for Mars. Pegas is their word for hill. And so the Areopagus is what we call Mars Hill. And so Paul gets invited to come share a little bit more about his views in this place. So now I want to get back to this point, this first point. All right. The first point, again, is be ready for the unexpected opportunities to share the truth about God. Let me show you why that is the point. The way that Luke writes verses 16 through 21, and really this entire passage, it very much comes across as this was unplanned. You know, Paul was called to Macedonia. Athens is not in Macedonia. You know, Paul had a vision and a dream in the night where he was supposed to go share the gospel in a particular place. This is not in that particular place. He is there by circumstance, by chance. He had to flee from Berea. They had to help him escape. Now he's in Athens. He's there by himself. This wasn't part of Paul's plan. Paul was probably thinking, quicker we can get out of here and get to Corinth, which is a strategic city, more strategic than Athens at that time. The quicker we can get out of here, the better. I'm not supposed to be here. That's what Paul was thinking. And so it was very unplanned. In fact, you can even read the language of the passage. It feels that way. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting, you know, it's like, what's he doing? Seeking to reach Athenians for Christ? No, he's literally just waiting. He's just tapping his foot saying, Timothy, Silas, get here so we can go. While Paul was waiting in Athens, what are you doing in Athens, Paul? Are you there to share the gospel? No, this is just a layover. I'm just waiting. Verse 17 it says he's in the marketplace, and it says, who did, who did he share with? Did he specifically, strategically reach out to certain people? What does it say in verse 17? With those who happen to be there. It's all very, like, you know, unplanned. And I think Luke is intentionally writing it this way so that we'll see something. Even in verse 23 later, when Paul will share at Mars Hill, he tells them, he's like, as I passed along. It's like very passive language. It's like, as I was, you know, passing along. Life is like that, though, isn't it? That's ordinary life. There are lots of unplanned times in life. 
And the point I think that we should take from this is that we ought to be ready in those times for what God does have planned. Be ready for the unexpected opportunities to share truth about God. I love movies about like secret agents, like spies or like double agents, special operations. There's a movie uh, called The Born Identity. And I just want to tell you guys that that movie was 21 years ago. So if you were like, oh yeah, bring the Born Identity illustration right now, Matt, do it. You're old. You're old. That movie's a long time ago, okay? Um, but, but the picture here is a highly trained special forces agent who is embedded in society. There are actually many of them that are part of this, you know, treadstone organization, and they're living their ordinary life. Then they suddenly get called in for an assignment, a mission, through some kind of encoded message. And 21 years ago, it was like a beeper, all right? But they are never far from their personal safe with cash, lots of passports, and of course, weapons, so that they can quickly go from ordinary life to on mission. So these men and these women in in these kind of movies, they are living an ordinary life, but they're not ordinary, are they? They see things very differently. And most importantly, they are ready for the opportunity when it comes. This is you, Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, you must be ready for unexpected opportunities to share truth about God with a world that doesn't know him. Paul would later say in 2 Timothy, preach the word, be ready. You see it? It it like means a little more when you know some of Paul's story. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. Paul's like, you never know when the opportunity may be there. Be ready in season and out of season. Number two, be helpful to the outsider as you communicate truth about God. All right, the second point is the longest point. We have five very quick subpoints in the second point, so beware of that. Verse 22 through 31, be helpful. This is a very important point because we often do a lot of things that are not that helpful. Five keys for being helpful as we consider being helpful. The first one is finding common ground. Verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, so now he's there, he addresses them. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. All right. So so Paul doesn't come to Athens and go, All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for this speaking opportunity. If you will turn immediately into your Hebrew scriptures to the Old Testament, I would like to show all of you how condemned you are right in this moment. That's not how he starts his message. That's not where he starts. He starts with finding common ground. He he says, you know what? It's almost like a compliment. He's like, men of Athens, I perceive 
that in every way you are very religious. You are human. You're like me. You're wired to worship, to, to pay homage, to ascribe worth to someone or something. You and I, we're the same. You're very religious. He says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found this altar to the unknown God. You know, it's like Paul's like, as I was touring the architecture and looking at all the worship at these altars, I saw this one altar to the unknown God. And I pulled my phone out of my pocket. I took a picture of it because I was like, man, that may come in handy if I get an opportunity at some point to show, you know, Silas and Timothy or to share at some point in Athens because that, that could work. That could help me get into a gospel conversation. That's what Paul's doing. I've heard it said that a Christian should be able to get to the cross from any chapter in the Bible or from any article in the newspaper. That we're to look for opportunities where we can use it to find common ground with people to then share Christ with them. So he found common ground. Now, the second thing is this, five keys to being helpful. Do not assume, proclaim. Do not assume, proclaim. And, and here we're talking about assuming that people have the same shared sort of underpinnings, the same sort of view of the world as you, the same upbringing as you, that they, that they know what the terminology that you're using even means. One of the most unhelpful things we do as we try to share our faith with people is we assume that they're like already like 90% there and they just need to, you know, hear about Jesus and then we're good. We assume that they have the same basic views as us. We can't assume that. We use Christianese. It's so unhelpful. We've got to define our terms as we go. Do not assume. Proclaim. And what does Paul proclaim? He shares with them God. He proclaims the God of the Bible to them. Vince Lombardi, the famous Green Bay Packers football coach would start every football season at the beginning of the year at the first practice. He would walk onto the field with professional football players at the highest level, and he would hold up a football and he would say, men, this is a football. The point is we're starting right, we're starting from the very basics. We're not assuming anything. We're going to build this from there. Paul does the same thing. He starts with men of Athens. Let's start with God. Let's just start with God, and let's get that clear. Not all the God talk, the man upstairs, believe in a higher power. None of let's not assume that we're meaning the same things by any of those things. Let's start with who God is. So let's see what he actually says. So verse 23, he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So just think about this. Paul is speaking into the city of Athens where they believed in polytheism. They believed in many gods. They believed in territorial gods. And so he's saying to them, the God who made the world, and he's like, listen, listen, everything in it. This is not the God of Jerusalem coming to Athens. No, this is the God who made Jerusalem and Athens and everything in it. Look at what he says. He doesn't live in temples made by man. I want to show you a picture. I had the privilege of going to Greece in 2021. And so we were in Athens. And this picture shows you what the Acropolis looks like at night. That's the ruins of the Acropolis. 
And the whole city is built around this, this mound called the Acropolis. And on top of it is this temple called the Parthenon. And inside of that temple would have been a huge statue of Athena that Athens was devoted to. That's the ruins. People, people go to Athens to see the ruins. Can you imagine how amazing it would have looked in the day when Paul came to Athens? And I, and, and, and I share that because first I want to tell you this. That's not Mars Hill, okay? That's not it. That's the Acropolis. That's not Mars Hill. Mars Hill, I'll show you the next slide. Mars Hill is a hill near the Acropolis, near the Parthenon, that you can kind of get on where people would meet. Clearly, the Areopagus met there. You can kind of hang out, and you have a good view of the Parthenon and the Acropolis. Why do I say that? Because I want you to feel what Paul is saying here in verse 24. You see it? He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, men of Athens, he does not live in temples. So right, right at that moment, Paul standing on Mars Hill points to the Parthenon. He doesn't live in temples made by man. And you can just feel the, the counterculturalness of that moment. Paul is, he's elevating their view of God. He has a bigger God than they do. He says, nor is he, verse 25, served by human hands. You see, we talk a lot about, well, serving God. And that's okay. Like, it's all right to talk that way. But, but it's like God is not served by human hands. Paul's God is bigger. He's like as though he needed something. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your help. He himself is helping you. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. When we serve the Lord, we get to serve the Lord. He doesn't need us to. Paul's God is so much bigger. And he's proclaiming, not assuming. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation. So he made from Adam and Eve every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. So Paul's like, you know what? This moment right now, this is a divine appointment. God allotted providentially that this would happen, that you'd live here, that I'd come here. Paul's painting this picture of a very sovereign God, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then he's like, yet he is actually not even far from each one of us. Third Key for being helpful. So find common ground. Do not assume, proclaim. Number three, all truth is God's truth. So Paul now continues to quote some poets of their day. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And you know, all the men of Athens were like, oh, we know that. We know that poet. And then he's like, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. They're like, oh, this Paul, this is our guy. He knows our culture. The first little quote there is from Epimenides of Crete. And the second one is Aratus of Cilicia. Now, one thing I want to show you, even as we think about this, all truth is God's truth. I want you to think about this. I bet not many of us have thought about this. When he says, for we are indeed his offspring, he's quoting a secular poet 
And he's saying, let's take that. Let's, let's grab that truth. That'll work. We'll use that. That's good. But the author's original intent was not talking about the God of the Bible. It's talking about Apollos. That's okay. We'll take it. We'll use it. All truth is God's truth. We can use that. We can take that. It's amazing. He's like the poets of your day. Even your own poets have said. And he takes what their poets have said about a different and false God. And he says, they've even told you. It's really amazing. The poets of your day made me think of the many, many memorized lines of Taylor Swift songs inside of my head. Just kidding, really. I don't have many memorized, but one that I found was, you know, if you never bleed, you're never going to grow. That's from one of her songs, and it's true. And all truth is God's truth, and it reminded me of James 1. Brothers, count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials because it's producing steadfastness and perseverance. If you never bleed, you're never going to grow. Like, we'll take that truth. All truth is God's truth. That's what Paul's doing here. Number four, helpful keys. Challenge idolatry. He says now in verse 29, being then God's offspring, he's like, okay, you guys believe that you are in some way created by these gods. Your poets have even said, and we quoted them, that we're his offspring. So God has made you. You are his offspring. He's the progenitor. But he says, being then his offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Do you see? He's like, if we are his offspring, if he's the creator and we're the creation, we don't get to imagine and create him. If a holy, powerful, and personal God made human beings in his image, then why would we worship gold or our image and concept of him? That's an idol. That's idolatry. A really popular football coach right now, Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, wrote a book in 1998. The title is Power, Money, and Sex. How Success Almost Ruined My Life. I don't know where he's at in his faith, and I'm not saying that he's this great Christian leader, but I just want to read you the description of the book. Superstar Deion Sanders tells his powerful life story and reveals how power, money, and sex, those are all common idols, could not satisfy the void in his life, a void ultimately satisfied now by his relationship with Christ. Challenge idolatry. Augustine says in his testimony and confessions, thou has made us for thyself and our hearts are ever restless until they find their rest in thee. Challenge idolatry. That's what Paul's doing here. He finds common ground. He doesn't assume, he proclaims. He takes truth and their truth and shows that it's all God's truth, but then he challenges the idolatry. He's like, how's that working for you? He's like, let's wrestle through and talk through the logic of that. We should do the same. 
how's it going making that thing that's not ultimate to be the ultimate thing in your life? Like, how is that actually working? These keys for being helpful, believe it or not, we're still in the second point, but we are almost done. The fifth one is call people to return to Jesus or call people to turn to Jesus to repent. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Do you see that? If we are to be truly helpful to outsiders, we don't assume we proclaim. We make sure we connect and find common ground, but we don't leave out the part Not that we're calling them to repent, but that God commands they repent, which is a religious word that simply means to change your mind, to turn from wherever direction you're going and turn to God. Why? You say, why? Why why would that be commanded? Verse 31 answers that question. Because, pay close attention here, because he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Do you see what the Bible is teaching us right now? That God has a day circled on his God calendar. It's fixed. He knows when it is. Judgment is certain. It is specific. It is definite. We live in a moral world. We, everyone wants God to judge. We just want God to judge all those other evil people, not us. But we live in a moral universe, and God is just, and he will judge. He will judge evil, and he will judge good. On a fixed day, he will do that. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, it answers. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Well, who is that? Well, we know it's Jesus. And of this, he, that is God, has given assurance. He's given proof of this, that he's appointed Jesus. He gave proof that he appointed Jesus to be this judge. How did he do that? By raising him from the dead. So God raised his son from the grave. And the point of that, one of the points of that, of many, is to say to us, This is the guy. Pay attention to him. It's all about you and him. Your relationship with him is the main thing. That's what it's saying. He's going to judge. And and so the point is call people to turn to Jesus, to turn away from self and sin and turn by faith with the empty hands of faith to Christ. What is your relationship with Jesus? Jesus. What is the relationship with Jesus of your close friends, your family, your community? Do you care? Call people, be helpful to the outsider in communicating God's truth. Now we're on the third point and last, and this is a quick point. Be faithful and leave the results to God. Let me read verse 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we see here some mixed responses 
do we not? Really, we basically see three responses. Some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again. And isn't that often how it goes? People aren't right, ready right away. They're like, you know what? I'll, I'll meet you for lunch again. Talk more about that. I might only be ready to follow you right now. I'm not quite ready to follow Christ. That's one part. But then look at this third part. Some joined him and believed. I love that. I underlined that this week when I was just reading this text before really studying it. I was just thinking, I love the inseparableness there of joining and believing, of, of, of faith and of community. I was thinking that's a great verse you could plug, like being committed to your local church. Be a member. If you believe, all right, then join. They go together. So, but again, the responses are mixed here. I want you to consider that one response, that people mocked it. I think it's helpful for us just for a moment to step back and compare. You know, really, we should compare the way Paul leaves Athens to the way he left these cities before. So he was in Philippi, he was in Thessalonica, he was in Berea. And in all of those places, he was, there were riots. He was like on the list of most wanted. He was expelled. He was arrested. He was kicked out. What happens in Athens? It's different, isn't it? We've got to notice that. He is mocked. Paul leaves on his own terms. He's like, all right, I'm going to walk out of their midst. He's, obs- he's kind of just irrelevant. He just leaves. Don't you think Luke is intentionally showing us this? There are no baptisms of entire households in Athens reported here. And this is important for us. Again, the point is be faithful and leave the results to God. We got to remember that whether there's immediate fruit or not, our role is to be faithful to Jesus Christ and leave the results to God. The response the people have to the truth of God when we share it with them in a helpful way is between them and God, not between us and them, not between you and them. There's a place in the Old Testament when Samuel, the prophet, is frustrated with Israel, the people of God, because they all just want a king like the other nations have. And Samuel's taking it very personally. And God says to Samuel in chapter 8, verse 7, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. It's really important that we remember this because it helps us to focus on what we can control, and that is be faithful and leave the results to who? To God. And so as we close, and as Jeremy comes back up, there's one last observation that I think we should make together. There's another place in Scripture. There's another place in the New Testament where a man who sought to help outsiders find their way back to God was mocked on a hill. Do you know it? It's not Athens. It's Jerusalem. It's not Mars Hill. It's Calvary. 
It's not Paul. It's Jesus. It's not the voice of the Areopagus mocking them. It's your voice and mine. And so now, if you know Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ and you're one of his ambassadors, I ask you this morning, what is your hill? What is your Mars hill? Who are the outsiders that God has called you to bring the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus to? Will you be faithful? Will you endure? Will you leave the results to God? And so, like Paul, it is our great privilege as Paul walks away from Mars Hill. Literally, the text says he left their midst. Like Paul, it is our great privilege to share in the path of Christ, to share in the sufferings of Christ, and to leave the results there.